you're late. Praxis is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is Praxis early. He arrives precisely when he means to. A wee disclaimer before this episode. Luna, Alex's dog, was a little shit throughout. So if you hear random banging, pops, whining in the background, that's the dog. Nothing else. No attic wives or Downing Street parties. Just a shitty dog. The more informal, the better. <laughs> well, good. Perfect. <laughs> but thanks so much for um, making time and things. And uh, I hope everything, like last time you were in the middle of a storm or was that something? Could have been. There were a couple of potential tornado warning things, but yeah, no, everything is fine. Just the chaos. Is... I feel like this is like the, one of the weirdest things about, because I'm guessing you're living in America at the moment because that's where you're based, right? So um, yeah. like just the idea of having weather that's more extreme than just like really heavy rain. Oh no, I know, it's, it's true. It, and it's so random because it kind of like there for two days and then suddenly it's back to, yeah, it's part, you know, unlike the kind of steady rain and dreariness of a British. <laughs> steady comfort of the slow drip, yeah. yeah it's okay, you know, I, I quite like that. I'm not really into this extreme stuff anyway. <laughs> no, I, I, I just wouldn't know what to do. Because also... Like, it gets boring when you're used to extremes when you're talking about the weather. Like, I'd rather not talk about the weather when it's extremes. I'm quite happy talking about the weather when it's just like, oh, yeah, it's just a little bit shit. But if it actually gets shit, then it'd be really awful to just talk about it all the time. It couldn't be the go-to, like, because when it becomes, like, really deadly, that's when you're like, it's not a safe topic anymore. That's the beauty of British weather. It's just, it's just an inconvenience, and we love an inconvenience, so. It's just something else to complain about. I'm terrible because we just don't take any notice of these extreme weather warnings. Maybe that's what helps, you know. Maybe if you don't if you don't register it, it doesn't register you. You know, it's, it's more afraid of you than you are of it. Is that how a tornado works? It's like yeah. a T Rex. They can only see you if you're moving. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Jurassic Park watched it for the first time about two weeks ago. <laughs> Excuse me, the very first one. <laughs> I've never Please, seen what? it. <laughs> how are you watching Jurassic Park? I I had a. Bad childhood? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, now you have to watch Jurassic World and like cheer at the moment when um, the redheaded woman like runs and heals and it's like a really empowering moment for yes. business women everywhere. Yeah. That's right. Sounds a bit girl bossy. Like. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's pure girl boss. Like she's, re- she's really leaning in. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Does she also great. say, hey, girly, I've got an opportunity for you. I earn £500,000 at home. Is that what she does? I mean, maybe. I don't remember that. But she definitely doesn't have children because that, that it's incompatible. Ah, right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, Can't yeah, be yeah. successful and have children. Ah, right, right. Mm-hmm. But you can own a park full of dinosaurs. Ooh. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Praxis. How did you start this? Did you start as PhD students or? Um, You wanted to, didn't you, Louise? It took like two and a half years to convince me. We were talking about this. It wasn't a matter of convincing. It was a matter of us being like, oh, yeah, we will do that. Because we were office mates during the PhD. And then basically it just took a global pandemic for us to actually get our (laughs) arses into gear. 
Um, <laughs> Literally just took the world stopping and having nothing else to do. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and now that things are back to sort of like quote unquote semi-normal, that's really fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we keep messing our dates. <laughs> yeah. Our schedule is so tight. It's just, you know, we're very, like, deadlines, poo. <laughs> What are they? What are they? Yeah, no, no. That's why I was wondering how you managed to do it around. Oh, we don't. (laughs) Yeah, it's why we're two weekly as opposed to weekly. And it's why we often miss when we're meant to release. And And it's also why it's very informal because the idea of doing anything other than the most cursory glance at people's web pages um, (laughs) and like sitting down and reading through full things. Although I did, I did skim, I skim read some, some of your things this afternoon. So, you know. Which is more than most people can say. No, no, no need to be to know anything in depth. I feel. Would you like to do bio, or would you? I could do bio. Do you want to do? If you do methodology. Yes. Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. Today we are speaking with globe-trotting immigrant art historian extraordinaire Dr. Anna Ribbendan Kesson, who is currently an assistant professor of Black Diasporic Art at Princeton University. Anna's research focuses on art and material culture from the 18th to the 21st century, with an emphasis on histories of race, empire, medicine, and migration. Her first book, Black Bodies, White Gold, Art, Cotton, and Commerce in the Atlantic World, is currently out with Duke University Press and has a very cool cover. She is also heading up a brand new digital project, Art HX, which considers the importance of visual sources as tools of empire, which is also, I would say, very aesthetically pleasing as a website. Welcome to the podcast, Anna. Thanks so much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Does that all, was that all kind of correct? We always like to double check that it's not, because we, we get things from online and generally people's online bios are like so out of date. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. I've had to update mine. So you've got everything. Yeah. Oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> I've been trying to refine my bio down to like a hundred words, you know, because um, who needs to know all of those things really? It's also the picture like, I don't oh, have yeah. a suitable bio picture. Like, I'm using one yeah. that, like, oh, it's shite. It's one that my partner took, like... She's got no no aesthetic eye at all. Not at all. She's a philistine. <laughs> no, she's actually very into photography and stuff, but the thought of having a photo shoot for a work profile just makes me want to vomit. So... <laughs> um, I know. Yeah. I know. I mean, it's interesting, actually, because all of that is part of the academic milieu here in a way that it isn't so much I think elsewhere so because you were previously working in Australia is that right or I yeah well I did sort of I am I'm from Australia I mean I was born in Sri Lanka but then grew up in Australia and New Zealand and so I did my nursing degree in New Zealand um worked in the UK and Australia and then moved back to Australia because my family were there and that's when I did my undergrad so I've never actually worked in Australia in academia, but okay. I've been, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of embedded in different sort of networks there, but um, yeah. Because yeah. I just, I just had this great image in my head. I mean, it's, it's incredibly reductive and terrible, but the idea that all Australian academics are like on the beach in their profile pictures or like <laughs> everyone's holding a surfboard yeah. or like they're all having a barbecue that I would like that. I think that's what they should have. Mm. Yeah, it's a nice thought. I think that's the aim often, but it doesn't always eventuate, I think. It seems like a really, like a, there's like a really American academic thing, though, where everybody has this really, like, shiny, shiny website with at least, like, three different really professional photos of them, like, one holding a book, 
one looking into the sky, another one like pointing at a lecture hall. Um, and it's like multiple pages. Like the idea of having my own personal website makes me feel really sick and anxious. So I know. And actually, th- so I'm going to shout out my friend here, um, To and Fro Studio. They made my website, but oh. they're also really good friends. So it felt it felt okay to work with them <laughs> and their architects so I could kind of tell them my ideas and they kind of made it. It's a, it's a really different kind of ecology um Mm -hmm. here that is I still find myself um even though I'm right in the heart of it I still find it really difficult to to do this sort of self-promotion kind of you know because it's not it's just not part of Mm. a lot of the academic culture and that I grew up in in Australia and certainly in the UK I think too it's it's a really different so how long have you been um because you're now based at Princeton right how long have you been over for so we moved to the US in 2007 when I did my to start my PhD and then we came back to the UK for a couple of years because my husband's Scottish so I thought we'd you know stay but then yeah there were no jobs so at Princeton I've been here since 2015 but I think we've been in the US for what is it 13 years now I think 2005 was definitely only at least four years ago it's definitely, <laughs> definitely not 13 years that's insane <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a long time. Someone told me recently, but of course it is, that like that bouncers no longer, when they check IDs, look for like the full date. They just look to see whether you've got a nineteen or a twenty at the start of the year. Oh my gosh! Which oh, really yeah. that that one that one shook me to the core. Um, like no, I, it's pretty scary actually. Although I got ID'd for paracetamol the other day, which I believe is sixteen. So. Oh, oh is nice. it 16 or is it just because they were worried about you like i mean it could have been that i was wearing my uh, my offensive i've got a sweatshirt that's bright pink and it's got a goose on it where i'm carrying a knife and it just says murder um <laughs> <laughs> so i was wearing that and i'm like maybe that has something to do with it I'm definitely teaching that <laughs> frequently because <laughs> i am absolutely. style itself i don't know if you can tell <laughs> I can tell absolutely it's always nice to be ID'd I I still get a little kick out of it (laughs) yeah you're like oh thank you (laughs) yeah apart from when you like forget and then you're like literally I'm haggard look at me and then (laughs) I'm so tired I'm so tired I have a mortgage (laughs) (laughs) so what we like to do with our guests is we have a thing called the methodology kazoo and this is where we have decided on a jingle that we have curated. So it's a game. Oh. So it's okay. name that tune <laughs> that I will play on the kazoo. But I always forget which way round I'm meant to do it. It's the, the fat big end. end. The yeah, big it's end. The big end. Yes, yeah. yes, the big end. Maybe that's the reason why I'm so shit is it. Um, but then um, somewhere in our brains, we've connected this song to your research. And so the, the question yeah. is, name that tune. And why do we think it represents your research? Because it's probably <laughs> wrong. Okay. I'm terrible at this. Okay. okay. We are too. Who are we? <laughs> I described this podcast the other day as chaos academia. So let's lean into that. i <laughs> <laughs> my life. So. <laughs> okay. No. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm impressed by the playing. I just have terrible memory, unless it's like Spice Girls. I, I'm afraid it's not Spice Girls. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know that which Spice Girls and why would that be relevant? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's something to do with like the time that the music, all the words to, to lyrics, I mean, all the lyrics to songs that I remember come from this very particular moment. And, this and it's just Spice Girls, Girls for the movie. Spice Girls movie was a postmodern masterpiece <laughs> it's when you get to the end and you realize that actually the whole movie was a movie pitch and you're like whoa it was gold by spandau ballet oh yeah okay yeah. <laughs> you sound semi-disappointed yeah, um... no 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 that makes complete sense now yes it does Okay, so why <laughs> why do we think that represents your research? Uh, I'm wondering about the title. Are there some connections between the the title of the song and the, the title of my my book? Currency and cotton. I mean, cotton as as this kind of um, this currency that was called white gold. I feel like there must be a connection there. I'm trying to think of if, if I've seen the music video. If there's anything. Anything I mean, no. you're thinking a little too hard into this because it was yeah, no, I love this. gold. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll just go with the currency. Yeah. yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. My favorite thing is when people go super, super deep into these like methodology moments, and we're like, "God, we're so insightful, Louise." Like, so like, this is totally our choices rough. are so good, and the choice is usually but, like it's got the same word in it as the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Art historians be like How he loved his critique of many colours It was red and yellow and green and brown and blue So we do have a first question though in terms of so um yeah. we are literary critics and therefore do not like know much about art history and the kind of methods of art history. So could you tell us like does a picture actually paint a thousand words? For an art historian it probably paints like 20,000 words. Actually. Oh, nice, because it's a book. I get it. Nice. Yeah. Ah. Or at least a chapter around one image. Yeah. Which is interesting because my, I remember one of one of the things one of, that my editor told me has stuck with me. And I keep telling my PhD students and they kind of look at me, which he was like, no one really wants to read that much visual analysis. You can take out a lot of that description. So perhaps, you know, painting more than a thousand words is not a good thing. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think I have a lot of students that take my classes who are in, you know, English or complete and we get around. We're quite, yeah, quite I mean, yeah. it's, it's, they're the cool department. Even at grad school, like the complete people were the people that everyone wanted to hang out with. Not the art historians, but... Um, and maybe not at our institution, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, not at mine. I don't oh. think so. No, they were definitely the coolest because they could do theory and they could do like um, textual analysis and they used big words and dressed in very like cool ways. So just, I love how you like nearly like went for your neck. Was that just indicating like a polo neck? Is that yes, there were <laughs> Polonex and cool glasses. Uh -huh, um, yeah, no, I get the vibe. I get the vibe. Yeah, yeah, you get. Anyway, I um, mean, if I see a polo neck and glasses, I'm usually as like wanker and avoid. <laughs> I think we have a different conception of cool. I, I, I hang out with them. I just said they were the they were the people that were considered cool in grad school. Mm -hmm. What was I saying? Oh yeah. 
So all my, my students from literary background kind of look at me when I say, okay, let's, what is an artwork? What does this artwork tell you? And so, and I just keep reminding them that it's the same as reading a book in many ways. It's just that you're, you're looking at the way a, a painting or way an object is put together with, you know, with different materials. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, th- I think there's a lot of crossover. I mean, that actually feeds really nicely to the second question, which was going to be, what is art? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the person to be asking. <laughs> well, we're not. Like, we don't know. <laughs> we're useless. Well, I mean, for a lot of people, what I do is not, you know, what I look at is not art, right? Like, oh. it's not, it's too, you know, it's like it's not good art or it's not, it's ephemeral or it's, you know, visual, visual material. I struggle with this question, actually, because to me, art, it, visual art, which is what, art history is most concerned with can be all kinds of things you know it can be the fancy works that are in museums and galleries but it could also just be a picture on a matchbox that is really interesting to look at um and for me too I mean I think about objects chairs or cloth you know I I think of it three-dimensionally as well so I yeah so I think that's why it's this is a question that comes up a lot I think in the in the discipline mm-hmm. um, if, if people are concerned about you know what about disciplines and these sorts of things like this is I think a question that's that is returned to a lot but honestly I'm not sure that it matters that much um, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. in terms of what you know of how you want to study and what you want to study I think it's for me it's always been questions and visual material gives me the the best way to answer those questions. We ask guests to prepare a Tinder bio about their research. Oh, I I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your chance. You wanted to reduce your bio down to 100 words. Yeah. Now you only have like 10. Yeah. (laughs) I've never been on Tinder. We haven't either. We haven't either. We just think it's funny. (laughs) Like literally all I can think of is I'm Anna. I like to touch things. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Love it. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd swipe right on that. I mean, it's a little creepy. I prefer maybe a little bit of. Um, yeah, well, well, how else can I like? I need maybe I could put haptic in there, but I'm just trying to think how I can. I probably would, but I would do it with the caveat of doesn't sound very exclusive. Yeah, doesn't sound very what exclusive. It sounds like you're just gonna touch all the things, which might be fine. Yeah, that's like, true. But equally, I, I don't know if I prefer like an idea of kind of exclusivity or you know just at least some parameters for what things you would touch because that sounds like you just touch all the things yeah I know it's true I know it's true but I thought exclusivity is like not the realm of tinder true exactly Louise take that well this is why I haven't used (laughs) tinder what do you think Alex um yeah no I uh I'm also intrigued by like I like to touch things you know, to me, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting type of methodology, right? It's very, uh, yeah, haptic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the haptic, but that's just like, how do you put haptic into anything? Oh, you could just have it as just being like, ooh, haptic. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, uh, ooh, haptic. Swipe right. <laughs> Swipe right. Ooh. I think if you put ooh in anything, it's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, have you um you know that Desiree song? Like the um the one with the awful lyrics that's just like something like that this be like yeah, but eat a bit of toast, I'm frightened of a ghost, ooh, I get the shivers. It's a very famous song. No? No? No. Sorry. Oh. Anyway, there's a Twitter account that just does the news in the style of this really shit song with the worst lyrics in the world, and then it just finishes up every, any news story with, ooh, I get the shivers. So this is what I'm, yeah. This is- oh. oh, yeah, I'm seeing it now. Mm-hmm. Live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Life by Desiree. It's fucking wow. awful. I love it. It's so terrible. Esteem factor. I get the shivers. Give us a boring fact. You know how when like it icebreakers, everyone asks for an interesting fact. We want a boring fact. The most boring. boring. Um, from my book. Just about you. No, yourself. just about you. About me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's your book. I don't know. But no. <laughs> Is your boring fact? I wrote a book because frankly. <laughs> I'm a cricket tragic. I think that's pretty boring, though. Oh, what is it like? You like cricket? I love it. Oh, no. That is really boring. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is dumb. My question is, what's more boring, cricket or um, what's the American version of cricket? Baseball. Oh, baseball, for sure. Yeah, they just both seem really, really boring. It's like shit rounders. They're really shit rounders. <laughs> both both rounders. of them are shit rounders. <laughs> but it takes so long, cricket. You just have all this time to kind of sit and... I don't know, drink gin and tonics or whatever. I, don't know. I mean, I could do that without the cricket. Like, I don't know why it has to be about watching, like, men with bats and balls and, like, getting, like... I mean, it is quite fun watching the majority, like, male crowd turn a bright pink from the sunshine, um, yeah. depending on where that's being taken place. But, yeah, cricket... I've also got no concept of how the fuck cricket scores, but I also have no intention to learn. No, like, I'm not going to tell you. No, no please don't. Because that, like, I prefer just the fucking, I don't know, 20 overs and a hat. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, I, I made that up. What did you say? Like, the, the 20 overs, <laughs> is that a thing? Out that for 12? Thing. I don't know. Out for 12? <laughs> I don't know. Start for He's 10. He's got 459 <laughs> runs. Wow. I don't <laughs> Over. <laughs> I don't know. Stop that wicket. I don't know. Something about you hit something for. Is there a duck? No. Is a six? A birdie. No, that's golf. <laughs> okay, right. Let's move on. <laughs> sports ball. Yes. Those men yeah. play sports ball with their sports. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Wickets. I mean, is is this fair to say though? But is it like a? I would say it's a sport of empire. I feel like cricket yeah. and empire go hand in hand. And from that. Let's segue. Oh, what a segue. What a segue. Touch a segue. Look at that. Your work is really concerned with the visual politics of empire, is it not? (laughs) That's a perfect, perfect description of my work, yes. (laughs) That is basically all it's concerned with, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what does it mean then to see empire? Is it just like seeing cricket everywhere or like statues of Queen Victoria hanging about? Is that just, I mean, that's just because we live in a British city, so. Yeah. um, well, that no, I think that's that's probably a really good description because I grew up seeing seeing statues of Queen Victoria. She just gets everywhere, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she's very mobile. <laughs> that colonial figure. <laughs> yeah, very mobile considering how fat she was. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, the park that I remember my parents taking me to in Sri Lanka was called like Victoria Park or something. 
She's got so many parks. Yeah, in New Zealand too, you know, there was always monuments to various aspects of the British monarchy. I mean, everywhere, right, in the in the former colonies. So I think seeing Empire for me has always been about like this weird sense of seeing seeing England in all these different places or seeing Britain in all of these different places and then feeling this this weird kind of connection to Britain that actually isn't a thing because when you get there as a, someone who's you know non-white and not from Britain it's pretty clear that there's you know there's no re- reciprocal connection going on so um, <laughs> In fact, it's really hostile against precisely that type of connection, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that really propelled me to, to look at some of this these artworks by you know contemporary artists, but also just to try and figure out my own strange relationship to the politics of empire and the the visual culture of empire. I don't know if you've read Jamaica Kincaid's work. Um, yeah. But she talked, I mean, she talks about this, I think, in um, a small place. Small, small, she, small island, yeah. Yeah, that kind of, that sense of seeing where you are from through the through this sort of imperial lens. So, yeah, I think that was where this interest and where this kind of um, direction came for me anyway. I think it's really interesting, this kind of like, oh, we're everywhere, but also there's no reciprocal connection. I think that's really interesting. And before that wolf eats my grandma, give that wolf a banana, give that wolf. Academics and connoisseurs of Eurovision will have noted the distinctly Freudian subtext behind Norway's 2022 entry. We have a riddle for you. Oh. So. Oh my gosh. What weighs more? A hundred kilogram bag of cotton or a hundred kilogram bag of gold? Oh, Oh, is the cotton wet or is it dry? Oh, I mean, really, we're just asking about the relationship between cotton, gold and blackness. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I have no idea what time it is for you, Anna, but like they're both a hundred kilograms. Was it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they weigh the same. They weigh the same. why I'm really bad at like off cuff things. That is amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that on my son. He's really into riddles. <laughs> Riddle or cruel joke? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what what is the relationship between cotton and gold and sort of value politics and also its intersections with blackness and visual visual culture? Uh so there are the kind of linguistic relationship is that cotton had this, you know, had this kind of colloquial name, term of white gold because it was such an important currency. It was an important currency in, of course, in the slave trade. Um, it was also a, a term that described its significance as a commodity in the 19th century. I think, too, the, this idea of gold helps to describe just the importance of cotton. It wasn't... It, you know, it what did start off being a kind of a commodity that was only available to, you know, upper middle class, you know, um, aristocratic demographic. But then by the you know, by the time we get to the nineteenth century it's pretty it's pretty much available to everybody. Yeah, it's still preciousness is not the right word, but but it, it has this really important association with you know, with values like progress and mm. um 
civilization even and so it it really take it really took on this uh metaphoric role as a kind of uh emblem of western modernity i think mm. there are these really interesting almost like it narratives right that kind of describing cotton's progress from fiber to textile but that that idea of progress is then also transposed onto the the idea of like western modernity progress of europe versus the the backwardness of you know british colonies and you know as it too is a very malleable kind of fiber it has i think its meanings mutate and take on these different connotations but then it's i think it's in terms of its use as currency it, you know it literally becomes a way of valuing the economic productivity of enslaved people and so one of the things that i'm trying to show in the book is how you know cotton almost becomes another framework for seeing seeing blackness in in visual culture but then that that has implications for how black people are viewed and valued in you know in society more broadly in terms of this idea of cotton becoming a system of valuation and do you mean in terms of what the sorry the economic productivity of it like how much could be produced in a day or like are you talking about in terms of weight or um what are those actual metrics that you're thinking of there sure well so the the price of cotton often um mapped onto the you know the price that enslaved people could get in the option all right so like so like the more expensive the cotton the more expensive the enslaved person exactly or? yeah so that kind of so there's that clear correlation in terms of economic value but then yes there's also the sense that part of that value which i kind of talk about as through this idea of a, of a speculative vision is that people buying and selling slaves are also imagining how much cotton they would then pick right in the future and you know and the kind of future profits that that would bring and so that's also kind of tied into that price and i think in many ways cotton is also the way it's visualized and often described it is always about this future future gaze right looking towards what looking towards the product the the profits that will return to plantation owners right or manufacturers or merchants again if you can think about how you know how an object might be a kind of lens but there's this way that cotton encouraged encouraged people to, to always look towards the kind of this future future moment kind of suggesting then that this idea of speculative vision like would the plantation system be different if like the colonizer had just gone to spec savers yeah probably yeah <laughs> <laughs> just to completely like you know reduce your work to a petty joke but it's interesting, so in terms of like um with with cotton specifically uh were there any other resources that you found that had like a similar sort of lens framework in terms of valuation systems um i'm thinking about like other sort of like plantation economies and those kind of products or is it yeah is it just something specifically as well about cotton and systems of whiteness and values of whiteness as well going on in that in terms of the codification of cotton or yeah i i mean i think you could certainly say that about you know other commodities like rice and tobacco and and sugar i think cotton's i think i feel like it's unique for two reasons because it's not just a product that is being picked and you know processed by enslaved people it's also being used to clothe enslaved people right yeah. and so part of the way i think that cotton frames a particular value around blackness and and black lives is that it's 
it's literally materializing that value through dress that works in different ways on on a plantation you know enslaved people had to wear this kind of uniforms that were made from very coarse cotton cloth when you look at pictures on and read about slave auctions enslaved people and if they weren't shown naked, they were dressed in what was called fancy cloth, which was, was often patterned, coloured cloth, you know, that was meant to kind of um, highlight their value. So I think that there's that kind of material aspect to how cotton's creating this codification around blackness that then reinforces the sort of normativity of, of whiteness and you know, mm. white supremacy which is different to other commodities. But I think also it's also described in this way that's always about looking to the future. So they're always talking about the future, the future products that cotton will lead to. So I, there seems to be, a, and I haven't seen that so much in terms of other, other commodities. Yeah, no, the idea of progress is really, really interesting yeah. there. I suppose like in the 19th century kind of mind and framework, you know, all the spinning Jenny nonsense in the mills and all that. And I taught North <laughs> and South this week, so uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I think it's really interesting this kind of thing about the enslaved person's relationship to the product. So this kind of producer product weird thing happening there, being literally clothed in the sort of product that they were working with. There's a part of um, the history of Mary Prince when she's working in the salt ponds mm. where the salt would sort of wear so much and blister the body but then mm. the cure for that was to feed the enslaved persons more salt as a kind yeah. of medical cure-all so it's kind of this weird literally becoming the product thing yeah that seems to be happening with the relationship with cotton which is more of a comment than a question. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This becoming, this sort of enmeshing, it's also, you know, this is how how people were literally turned into into products too. So that's kind of part of that process. The abject. Obviously, this is an oral medium um, and you are working with visual materials. Uh, What what are some of the kind of the visual items? I was about to say artifact. Is that the right word? Probably not. Uh, The visual objects or the objects that you're working with in the book. One, why is visual art perhaps a a useful medium to think of this? When I first actually heard about your book, I was thinking like, oh, do any of the images you work with, are they also on like a cotton canvas? Or do they actually, yeah. like, do they get engaged with that kind of sense of stuff? But yeah, so what are the, the visual materials that you work with? And can you describe it for our listeners? And describe them for us. Yes, paint yeah. a picture. Paint a picture, <laughs> please. With words, words. <laughs> words tell, yes, many stories. The main kind of historical visual objects that I work with are textiles. So I, you know, I'm studying swatches of cloth, the, the cloth that was used to, you know, clothe enslaved people. Mm. I'm studying, as I said before there, some of them are coarse and brown and scratchy. You know, other kinds of textiles might be striped, various colours, because design manuals too are kind of making these associations between bright, gaudy colours and, and dark skin. And so so, that, so there's sort of two different kinds of textiles. I'm also looking at paintings of cotton by important artists in the kind of Western canon like Edgar Degas and Winslow Homer. So Degas, has his, he visits New Orleans to see his brothers and his uncle who work in a cotton factor business. So he has some paintings of these men in these cotton offices 
rummaging around in the in the cotton and you know Homer had these this painting of two young women who would have been sharecroppers kind of surrounded in this expanse of of uh, of cotton in a plantation post civil war um I look at you know prints from the 19th century so like lithographs that illustrate this kind of progress of cotton but then I also think centrally I look at contemporary art and so that's the sort of portal for me to, to talk about the historical material. Um, and so I'm, I talk about work by Lubaina Hamid, uh, Hank Lewis Thomas, Yinka Shonabari and Leonardo Drew. Do you mind um, describing your fave? I think maybe saying your fave thing is, is maybe. <laughs> but please describe your fave <laughs> Reference Alex Campbell's term, not mine. <laughs> Do you have a favourite artwork? Yeah, but when we're talking about enslaved persons and the cotton trade and that, then it's maybe. Oh, not I mean, a... I was thinking of some of the more conceptual pieces from the oh, contemporary Okay, stuff. fine. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, okay, now I understand why you were upset with me. Yeah. For a second, okay. I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, I saw some of the pieces that you were looking at earlier on when I was browsing through your work, and I was like, oh, there's some really cool, like the one with the, the stacks. Of, of yeah. cotton. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. It's now just clicking into place. I'm yeah. like, oh, fuck, no, that could yeah, have been okay. awful. Okay. Yeah, what's your... <laughs> so, okay, I, I thought you meant the contemporary work, too. So... Yeah, okay, good, okay, 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 okay. good. So, okay. Louise was the only person I was who didn't get that. I was at fault. Okay, my bad. <laughs> what do you think are the most significant pieces? <laughs> you were just, you know, a few steps ahead of us. That's all, Louise. Yeah, so I suppose the, the research really came out of Labana Hamid's work cotton.com because that piece she made in 2002 for a a show that was looking at the hidden histories of Manchester and so it's a piece that was initially I think a hundred small canvas cotton canvas textiles and each of the textiles are painted in black and white in different patterns and the patterns imitate textile samples from the 19th century that she found and that she had them kind of in a grid falling down the wall, you know, cascading down the wall. And across from there was a, um, a brass plaque with a quote that she found in a, in a travel description of a, of a plantation. This architect, Frederick Olmsted, who visits a plantation and he's describing a young water carrier, a young woman carrying water. And it says, the, he said, I look like a, a painting of Murillo because I carried a water jar in my head something like that. I can't remember exactly now, but it's about the movement of cotton from the plantation to the factories in Lancashire and Lancaster. And it's also about the ways that Lubain is thinking about how cotton connected the, you know, enslaved cotton pickers with these factory workers. And so she talks about imagining how there might've been bits of hair or blood or, you know, stuck in the cotton bales that actually could have physically connected them. I mean, there are stories of dead slave children who who hide in the bales and die and then like kind of turn up in, oh, gosh. you know, in Liverpool. And so, I mean, these are, she's basing this on kind of historical material, but also these factory operatives wrote letters to Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, um, mm. in support of emancipation. So she's, so she's thinking about all of these different ways that, you know, the slave trade sustained and sustains Britain um, and how these histories are not brought to the surface. But I really love the quote too because, as I said earlier, there's a way that cotton sort of is about, it's used to transform black people into into products. And mm-hmm. 
there's a way that I think the depiction of, of blackness in art history does a similar thing. It does this sort of, it, there's a kind of objectification and abstraction of the experiences of, of black people. I think this quote really kind of meets that that process head on in a way because this woman is looking back at this this man who's describing her. And, you know, I always think of myself, that piece has been shown in different ways since 2002, but in the original iteration, the plaque and the canvases looked at each other. And so as a viewer, oh, okay. you were like literally between the two. And so there's a way that I think Lebena's work really compels you as a viewer to start making that excavation yourself. And so I, I've, I've always really been animated by her work because of where she's positioning you as a viewer or, or me as an art historian. So I think that work is really, you know, is really important to to the book, but also just to kind of how I've, I've been trying to think through some of these questions. Definitely a fave. No, just... <laughs> <laughs> I was Googling the inscription. So it says here as well that it was initially found from a plantation inspector's report, and then she's rewritten it in the voice of the, the woman who is being objectified in that, yes. in that um, statement. That's really, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very yeah. cool piece. Sucking on my methods like you wanted me. Can you tell us a little bit about artshx.com? Oh, sure. What is the, is it org.co.uk? No, I don't. <laughs> I think the website is like artandcolonialmedicine.com. Okay. <laughs> Very different, yeah. <laughs> it is a kind of shift in some ways, but I guess it's only a shift if you, like if you think of academic work as like a, you know, itself a kind of progression, right? I feel like we all are doing like a million things at the same time. So because I, I used to be a nurse and so I've always, you know, wanted to try and find a way of bringing... Of becoming a doctor. Yeah, I get it. Yes. You wouldn't believe how many times when I, I was nursing, people were like, oh, so are you, are you going to go to med school one day? I'm like, oh, I think I'm pretty happy. But anyway, but yeah, anyway, I am a doctor now, but not the right one. Both my dad and my stepfather are, are medical doctors and I lord it over them all the time that they are not in fact doctors. They are MDs. That's true, actually. That is true, isn't it? I always tell this yeah, anyway, I I won't tell the story now. But anyway, <laughs> do it, do it. Do it. Tell the story. We love stories. Tangents are fun. No, because you know, I'm I'm Tamil and Sri Lankan and it's all you know, this is like it's a stereotype, but it's kind of true, right? Like the professions available to you are doctor, dentist, accountant, you know, something like that. When I started to do my PhD and then I would meet like I remember going to a wedding and I was sitting on this table with everyone else's us in Sri Lankan. We had to all had to go around saying what we were doing and it came to me and I was, you know, I was in the humanities and they all just kinda of went Oh. <laughs> yeah, we've all we've all been at that wedding table. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, this project was about trying to figure out these frameworks of empire and how they shape right the way we see and and relate to each other. But then on the other hand, I, you know, I've also been thinking about how because I guess the the way that I really came to understand that was as a nurse. Um, I trained in New Zealand and trained with a lot of Māori and uh, Pacific Islander women mm -hmm. who, and that's really, I think, where I came to understand critical race theory, where I started to read post-colonial theory and really where I saw how seeing people and seeing difference has this very, very 
material effect on people's bodies. So I, yeah, so I guess I've always been trying to figure out how, how to really in- interrogate that through my work beyond kind of it being an animating question. Um, yeah, and so I started teaching a course last year, just you know, to what spring of 2020, on this on race and medicine and in the British Empire and art. And then COVID happened, and it just was you know like you, it was like oh okay, maybe now's the time to do that other thing that I had no time to do. And so that kind of spurred Art HX. So HX is what you use in medical terminology for history. Mm. And so that's why it's called Art HX. Um, oh, I thought it was just trying to be cool. But that's, that makes more sense. Like, yeah. I feel like when you add an X or a Z, it's because it's like, oh, let's try to make it funky. Hey, kids. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, it kind of emerged from this moment. Um, so the idea was to, was to create a resource, right, that people could access that brought all these different intersections together. Because one of the things that I found through teaching was, I mean, there are lots of medical, and you know this, you're in the middle of humanities, there are lots of medical humanities databases, but it's, mm. or, or, you know, collections of, of, medis, of medical objects, but it's really hard to filter them through some of these terms. And so this was a way to try and start doing that work. Um, and because, you know, with COVID, like people weren't traveling to archives and things like that. So we thought maybe this could you know, this could work as a kind of helpful tool. It's become a bit of a bigger project that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. One of the privileges, right, of being an academic, I think, is when you can just, you can really do do what you really love. And I think this is one of those projects for me. It's, it's just endlessly interesting and people seem to be interested in it too, so. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a huge question. When you're, when you're looking at sort of the intersections with medical artifacts and history and intersection with race, I'm presuming there's some sort of horrific stuff out there, mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of bizarre prejudices. But did you find anything that was perhaps surprising, that perhaps wasn't as horrific as we made out? Or is it all pretty harrowing? Like, is there anything that you've found when doing this sort of work for art HX, which still i get confused with the hx thing um, but yeah like was, was there anything yeah. that you that, that really sticks in your mind that was just another fave no. well yes another fave but like... um i think unfortunately a lot of it is mostly like horrific and maybe that's not surprising but maybe it's just like that's one of that's become that's been one of the things that we've been thinking about is how do we do we show that you know how when do we not show things and when do we have them up there but there's one there's this comparative anatomy text and there's a page in it it's called the head of a black man it's by a artist called um, Charles Bell. It's interesting in a kind of horrifying way, right, to sort of see these um, these texts where you're looking at literally the interior of a subject while also being able to see the, like, the, the skin, the exterior. And so, and it's about making these, trying to make these claims, you know, around anatomy. Racial anatomy, yeah. Exactly. But they're also, I mean, there's also... I think something in there about, you know, just the way that these issues of race were so 
slippery and you know and so you're sort of also trying to see you're seeing here how a discipline like art history becomes so crucial to kind of anchoring those two you know those two um ideas or ideologies i really find texts like that fascinating and important despite kind of the the horror of it but i'm also just fascinated to know more and i'm you know i think this is a project we need to do like who these who these models were, right? Who these... Yeah, I, something I was thinking of earlier when you were talking about the, the kind of the, almost the landscape depictions of the plantations. I'm always interested in like who those figures are because then you know they're most likely never named. Um, no, and, and I'm sure as well for like uh, what for anatomical drawings or actual photographs, like whether or not like are they anonymized due to like Hippocratic elements, right? Of like not revealing the names of certain like medical subjects or is it more just like an absolute moment of like objectification, dehumanization, rendering body into medical product? I, I mean, I think it's the latter, probably. Yeah. They may have also been cadavers, but- um, Yeah, like and the issues of consent with that, right? Yeah, as well, exactly. In terms of like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, there's a lot of work now being done or starting to be done on black models in art history at this time. Mm. And so it's, you know, it's again, if we think about how our economies, our societies have been sustained by slavery, I think here too we're seeing how academia, like academic knowledge production has also been sustained by, by black lives in really profound ways. So that's a very long spiel, sorry. What can I say except you're welcome? The many funded projects in the field of medical humanities. I think. Um, sorry, I got distracted by Alex. You're trying. You're trying to think. I'm trying to think, and the cogs aren't working. Um, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, just um, you know, having had your experiences working as a nurse as well, like who's more frustrating to work with, patients or professors? <laughs> <sighs> professors <laughs> <laughs> yes I mean we thought we'd get that answer <laughs> I'm really interested in what your thoughts are on sort of medical humanities in general and whether you had any thoughts about sort of how it's not exactly a decolonized discipline mm. So I was just wondering if you had any kind of thoughts on, yeah, the intersection between medical humanities and critical race studies, efforts to decolonize as far as possible. But obviously the academy itself is a colonial institution, so that's always an issue. <laughs> Not a small question, though. No, no. Like, <laughs> just to end on. Just to end. Um, let's ask a massive question. Can you question. decolonize the medical humanities? Thanks, Anna. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> wow. I should ask you this. You're the medical humanities expert. Mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I feel like such an interloper, actually, because I, you know, I've never really, you know, what the way I come at much of this is just through personal experience, as opposed to having proved myself in the field and and published and read everything and blah blah blah. So, I, but I think the thing that struck me the most as I've been kind of moving a little more into these conversations, because my experience is so personal and, you know, it's, it's so sort of subjective. It's, I think it's been, it's been really interesting to talk to people and hear people talk about research, about the experiences of whatever they're studying, right? In, in this very objective way, 
you know, even though in, in medicine and in allied fields, you know, people are objectified in all kinds of ways, there's still a sense that you're talking about the lived experience of someone. Mm. And I feel like that's often, that's where I've often struggled with reading and talking about some of this material. So I wonder if that, you know, that kind of, if that kind of reorientation might be the starting point. I mean, academia does another kind of, I think, another kind of objectification, abstraction, commodification of knowledge and bodies. And so, you know, one way of perhaps starting to deconstruct that is to to shift again like shift the viewing position so I you know I'm in African-American studies and and art history and I really think that you know while I am an art historian I am so because it's the best way for me to do the kind of black studies work as opposed to the other way around and I think there there's been so much written health and experiences of medicine and race in in these fields that perhaps just need to be again engage with more beyond space but yeah I I mean I don't yeah I don't know I think it's something that needs to be continually um worked at I think it's a it's an interesting field to me I yeah because it's like it's like two almost two opposite terms right the medical and the humanities and it's really yeah it's it's a great field because it's so interdisciplinary but sometimes you just are like oh and that's also and that's also medical humanities and that is as well oh and that is like yeah it becomes all encompassing (laughs) but I mean I I think that's great I mean you were talking about lived experience as central to humanities methodologies the other day Louise so yes that chimes I mean, it, I'm, I'm not going to say on the podcast that you were saying intelligent things. That would be terrible. Uh, <laughs> I don't, don't want to ruin our very carefully created veneer of ineptitude. I can't. Um, I mean, the thing is, <laughs> I might have said something clever, but I have no memory of it because lol, ADHD. Uh, so <laughs> just I'll text you about it later. Oh, thanks, thanks. But also, <laughs> now I've got this recording that's kind of proof that I once said something clever. We'd like to ask people as well whether there's anything that you would like to plug um, sort of at the end of the podcast. Yeah, if you've got things your, coming up. To our darling listeners. If pe- people can follow us at, on, at, at ArtHX and there are loads of... Here is your reminder to donate to the UCU Strike Fund. Please do it. Don't be a dick. Do it. We've been Normal Praxis. If you like what you heard... You can rate and review us on iTunes, or to ensure that we keep producing world-leading, totally non-repable, excellent content, you can support us for the price of an overpriced coffee by signing up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash lawmypraxis. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Shout out to our biggest fan, Jeremy Corbyn. He liked us on Twitter. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye!